Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, my co-host Jennifer Kalari, coming along shortly. And this is the show where we talk about mental health. We talk about practicing. We don't talk about it. We do it. We practice mental fitness. We practice mental health skills because this is a time when all of these things can be used to actually handle all this. Because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, which is movie-like, but it's actually happening. I mean, I was watching Apocalypse Now last night, and and I was saying the word, so what, to the screen. Like, oh, I'm bored by this. This is so boring compared to what's actually happening in the world. So we need things that we can call upon. Sometimes they're simple things. Sometimes they're things you hear about. But oftentimes they're things that you don't hear about or think about. And that's what we relate to in this show. Sit back, relax, and bring all your baggage. Stack all your baggage up, everything that you're dealing with. This is the time to, to let it go right here. So on today's show, a great guest, one of the most respected comedy writers around, very creative, one of the most creative people that I know. He wrote two books about the Encyclopedia of Hell, Volumes 1 and 2, available on, Am- on Amazon. Amazing writing. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. He wrote the Adventure Time Encyclopedia because he actually plays Hudson Abadir on the, the iconic series Adventure Time. And he is the father of Marcella, I believe, the Vampire Queen, and great singer Olivia Olson. Martin Olson joins us. I had a great conversation with him, a blast. Now, Jennifer wasn't able to be on that conversation, so you're not going to hear her on the, in the interview, but you will hear my talk with Martin Olson, and, and then Jennifer will be along in just a minute. Today's show is brought to you by Mantra Bites, the delicious bite-sized cookie that has a mantra, which now you can actually digest physically. Be here now, look for the good, all the answers lie within. They're all part of the cookie. I'm enough, all part of the cookie, all kinds of mantras in, in a delicious assortment of cookies, calm coconut, peace pistachio, my favorite flavor, and raspberry rumi. All your favorites. Find the way things crumble cookie-wise with Mantra Bites. We always like to welcome listeners no matter what state they're in. Here are our emotional shout-outs. If you've ever asked for advice from a statue, welcome. If your Apple Watch is disappointed in your laziness, welcome. If you've ever had a virtual therapy session while making stir-fry, welcome. If your daughter caught you singing the song, Let's Get It On, into a hairbrush, welcome. If you have a COVID rapid test necklace, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. It's time for the siren of the cerebrum, the Aladdin of the amygdala, and the Nicole Kidman of the nervous system, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and we were just talking about this. We were talking about rage, Mm -hmm. but receiving rage, which I do think is a great name for a band. But in concert with my upcoming interview with Martin Olson that you're going to hear, he writes a lot about the dark side, about dealing with the dark side comedically, which is kind of what his writing is about. 
or if you could call it the dark side, I don't, I don't even know. How do people deal with their shadow sides, if you want to call it that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ra- rage being part of it. Sure. Well, I mean, if the first thing to kind of know about emotions, and we give them these labels like good emotions, bad emotions, dark emotions. And the truth is all emotions are important and all emotions are information. And when they're integrated and when they're in balance, we use all of our emotions to help us navigate, kind of like our own internal GPS system. And so usually what we tend to think of as negative emotions like anger or rage or fear are all kind of our signal that we're off the road. We're like off course a little bit. And it's the brain's way of saying something's not right here. We got to do something different. And what ends up happening is we sort of look at those feelings as the problem instead of as the information or the symptom of the problem. And we ignore them or we push them down or we have a drink or we smoke something or we blame someone else or we let it out on the wrong person and then feel bad about it. Part of my work when I work with people is, is, and, and do this with myself as well, is to kind of respect all of those emotions respect what they're telling us, that they're basically an indicator whether we're on or off course, how to bring light to it by honoring those feelings. And it sounds a bit corny, but it's true. Really just appreciating your brain for bringing that information to you, feeling it, metabolizing it, and then letting it go. So it doesn't just build up upon build up upon build up. When you have somebody who is the the recipient Mm -hmm. of rage, Mm -hmm. how do you handle that? When I work with families and I teach them how to use the calm technique, which we've talked about on the show a lot, it's a way of responding to someone instead of reacting to someone. And it's a way of sort of responding with your own kind of integrity intact. And it's really hard to do. It's very counterintuitive. When someone's yelling at you, you're going to want to defend yourself. Your own fight or flight mechanism is going to want to come on and you're either going to fight back. It's fight or flight, right? You're going to fight back. You're going to flight. You're going to run away or you're going to want to please or appease. It's okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. Those are the kind of three things you do when people are angry and anger is scary. Like it's, you know, being the recipient of anger can be really overwhelming and it can be very triggering if you've had past issues with, you know, angry parents or trauma in your past. But the best way to deal with it is to see that that it really is a symptom of the problem that usually behind that rage is someone who's afraid someone is feeling out of control or feeling very sad or, and panicked, you know, fight or flight is kind of the brain's response. And if you can sort of hold your own, see past the yelling, I almost have, you know, send the image of like being like an oak tree where you're just kind of solid and planted. You're letting that person kind of let all that out at you. And then you respond to them instead of react to them. So usually what I do is I mirror back. I mirror back what I think they're really afraid of or what they're hearing or what their real message is, even though it's coming off in a very loud way. And that it really is a superpower. It will usually deescalate the person pretty quickly. And then their frontal lobe will come back on. And then they'll say things like, oh my God, I'm sorry. That was a bit much. I really meant this. And it just ends up going better. If you end up screaming and yelling yourself, usually walk away later feeling terrible about that. So if you can really do this, it actually helps you have constructive conversations instead of horrible confrontations. And then there's sometimes when it's just so awful, you just have to say, look, I know you're suffering. I know you're having a hard time, but I'm not, I like myself too much to be screamed at like this. I'm, I'm out, I'm leaving. We'll talk at another time when you, you know, got yourself under control. It really is okay to protect yourself in those situations too. You don't have to stand there and take it if it's really um, disproportionate response from that person. Do you match the energy? Somebody screaming at you, do you scream at them? 
Well, if you do, you're just going to have an escalation. That's right. never going to work. You can match the intensity of us. Look, I'm hearing how important this is. I, I right. can see in your face how this is freaking you out and you're really kind of yelling at me. But I think underneath that is this is a really important issue for you or you're really afraid I'm not listening. So you have the same kind of affect, but you're not yelling. It's the urgency. You're reflecting back urgency and you're not getting defensive, it, it, which is, listen, it's so much easier said than done. And it really is a skill. I am thankful every day I have this skill. It's, it's just making, it makes all kinds of conflicts so much easier. And you just feel like you have more confidence. It doesn't mean the things don't hurt or bother you. It's just that they end up in a better place than if you'd actually lost it with the person. For somebody who has a fear of conflict, how can you practice dealing with it? Like this? I mean, I, honestly, I, I can't, I've, my whole life was afraid of conflict, terrified of conflict. It's the scariest thing for me. I go right to appease, right? That's my go-to. But this has given me, just personally, never mind as a, a therapist and a family therapist and a parenting coach, it's given me the ability in really high conflict situations to navigate them in a way that I feel really good about and with grace and with confidence. So I can practice dealing with, with conflict or you know rage or, or whatever by kind of, I think listening to yourself is like one way, mm -hmm. like actually paying attention to my own feelings mm -hmm. and my own anger or whatever's coming up. Would you say that all feelings are neutral? I don't know if neutral. I think there's definitely like a stronger, literally electrical charge to certain emotions, especially anything that's in the fight or flight category. But they're neutral in the sense that they're just information. And it's usually information related to fear. And it doesn't mean that you can't ever yell back. I mean, no one's expecting, you know, someone to go through life and never have any reactions. It's just, you don't want that to be your fallback all the time. You don't want that to be your dominant emotion. And anger is, a, is you know, it's, it's, a fair, it's a healthy emotion in some ways and ha having healthy aggression is actually really important. But being dominated by that darkness and being dominated by that anger and ruminating in your head and being ready to battle with everybody that says anything to you, you know, it can be really hard on the body it's really bad for your immune system, for your heart. You know, being angry all the time is not healthy. Being angry appropriately some of the time is very healthy. I was in group therapy once, and there was about six people, and there were two therapists, facilitators, and everybody was scared of the one of the people, one of the mm. participants. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about it, I loved is that any it was almost like a Bob Newhart sketch because every time anybody said anything, his response was, uh, I don't appreciate what you're saying and I find it very diminishing. I don't appreciate it was just the fun the strangest way of describing I don't appreciate what you're saying and I find it very diminishing. You could have said anything. You could have said I had a I had an argument with my girlfriend. It it would be anything. Anyway, that was kind of that was a wonderful experience for me. And then I ran into somebody, I think I've told this story before, but I was hosting something from Comedy Day, which was like 70,000 people in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Uh -huh. And I was backstage and I was interviewing Diane Feinstein, who was then mayor of mm -hmm. San Francisco. I hear this voice yelling from the background and it says, Ed, Ed Krasnick, Hank from uh, Group Therapy. Oh, God. <laughs> you got better. I didn't. What happened? Oh, God. Did you say I don't appreciate that? I, and I or find it very diminishing because <laughs> I did. Oh, I found I it, but I but when I turned back to talk to Mayor Feinstein, she was gone. I oh think she gosh. found it diminishing and scary. <laughs> With that, I want to.
play an interview that I did with Martin Olson, who is has got a lot of writing out there, a lot of books on Amazon. Two of them are called The Encyclopedia of Hell. And Martin has been involved with Adventure Time and a bunch of other shows and movies over the years. And he's also one of the founding fathers of the Boston comedy scene. So that's a whole other thing and probably a whole other show that we'll do because he was there at the beginning um, when all of it started to happen there in Boston. At any rate, we talk about a lot of things, but you're going to listen to somebody who's very creative in writing and in the comedy of darkness, the comedy of apocalyptic kinds of humor, and just is so creative with it. For example, the book, the book, The Encyclopedia of Hell, is written from the point of view of Satan. That's who's telling the story. He turns it on its head, and the way he does it is fantastic. You're going to hear about that and many other things. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. And by the way, Jennifer was not part of this interview because she was uh, working, so she was not able to be there. So you're going to hear me and Martin Olson. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Martin Olson on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast, and then we'll be back. All right, this is exciting. Like I told you, I'm here with Martin Olson. There's only one Martin Olson, and one of the most respected comedy writers, comedy minds, working creatively, and the books that you've written, and the the TV and the animation, and the talent that you've written for over the years collaborated with. Now, I was just, we were just talking about something kind of interesting, and that was that that you get a feeling, uh, you said you get a tingling feeling when you when you write and it's laughing and crying and feeling all different kinds of feelings. That that's amazing. Yeah, it's a very uh, therapeutic thing as as you know. By the way, hi, hi Ed, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm ambulatory. Uh, if you're if you're like alive, I've actually started putting staying alive on my resume as a special skill because if you're alive today, you're way ahead of the game. Isn't it amazing? We everyone just doesn't die all the time, really. I mean, all of our friends. It's weird. It's amazing, and but really, being alive when you think about that, that's not surviving. Surviving is one thing. It really isn't. I mean, the world is in a state of survival. Mo- you know, there's a lot of survival out there Yeah. if you're lucky enough to survive. But really, being alive is something different, something yeah, our culture right. really doesn't promote. We don't know about that. We don't show that or share that a lot. Well, one of the ways through to that is what you're talking about on your shows, which is healing, you know? Yeah, but you're talking about it. You're experiencing this, and that's having... That's having different emotions together, like mixed emotions, yeah. is is being that's truly being alive. Where it's not like I'm going to feel one thing and that's it. First of well, all, just just being able to access your feelings in a full way is like a huge thing. Yeah, I think it's more of a not necessarily having mixed feelings is when I feel most alive. It's when I feel one or the other, like super joyous or happy or hateful and miserable and yeah and do you call do you you call the police when that no i i do you place a phone call no i listen we all have these things but but we you know but i never understood as a kid i thought i was my feelings what do you mean 
I thought that, you know, however I felt was, you know, who I was. Huh. You know, I'm, I'm not feeling angry. I'm angry, huh. like me as a whole person. Huh. I'm not feeling happy. I'm happy. And it's like, and I thought that feelings make you bad. There's something about when I was a little kid. Huh. And that's why I walked around with a headache for about 20 years because I, you know, just had a headache because I was working against myself as, as much as uh, possible. Oh, well, let me ask you, you're kidding, of course, but do, do you have migraines or anything debilitating? I know I don't. I, I did have when I was younger and, and in high school, I, I walked around with a headache, a constant headache in oh. the middle of my head for a long so you, time. So you weren't kidding. No, but, you know, I, I, I just thought I was a bad person. And so hmm. the way that I, I thought there was something wrong with me, um, yeah. there was nothing wrong with me. I was having human responses to fucked up situations. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, and not, not, not like one man show kind of stories, you know, everyday, everyday neurosis, everyday, you know, craziness, and certainly a, a history of mental illness in the family. But oh, really, I didn't know. Oh, yeah. Deep, 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 deep. Oh. Yeah, it was uh, it's a who's who of despair. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a, it's it's deep. It's deep. I went to a shaman once. Now, this is a thing that you and I can talk about because you're you're a very spiritually aware person. No, I did. I, yeah. Well, you are if you can speak about the stuff you talk about. But I went I went to a shaman once who had a card that said Malibu shaman. So right away right away I should have known that there was a something was up. But she said to me, she said That's deep undercover, man. Oh man. She said to me, Your ancestors absolutely love you. Wow. And they are killing you. What? What did that mean? She said they love you and they're killing you. They're hanging on to you so much that you're carrying them around. It's a weight that you carry, and it's weighing you down. It's weighing your freedom down. You're not free because your ancestors love you and they're trying to kill you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm Which, cynical, but do you, did you sense in the moment that that was kind of a stock answer from her I didn't. I, I wasn't sure, but I've experienced all kinds of things that don't that defy description. So I'm open to it, you know. And I think now, if we study this, look. I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent. I want you to talk, but I mean, well, I wish I, I was more like you in that respect. I get skeptical of of con men, you know. Well, there's re there's good reason with good reason, you know, to be skeptical. But, know, but it listen, cuts you off though. It cuts me off from from love, you know. It cuts me off from from being open to some stuff that's potentially fake. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of that and most of the world would not have you believe especially the news media. There's a lot of good in the world and there's a lot of amazing things that are happening every minute. So we just don't hear about them. They're not publicized. I think and, that's because unhappiness and fear is more vocal than happiness and calm serenity. Well, that's true. I mean, that's that's true. But I, I do feel like if you're in a place of serenity, like I think about these great teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh and, and people like that who are leaders. Oh, right. That's great. Yeah, he did. He did. If you listen to him, because he's where he is, because he's present and he's not fighting himself and he's practiced at that, he doesn't have to say anything. You can just hear him breathe and it's OK. I mean, you're, you're brought to that place. That's the thing is that if you're that way, 
if you're really present and you're experiencing, or if I'm that way and I'm around a party of people who are insane, <laughs> you bring them to, they will be brought to that place huh. if, you, if you remain around them. That's why it's such a good thing for, for people to, you know, be present in a, in, a, in a really focused way. Well, dude, we should get cut to the quick about this. How do you say his name? You're the only person I know that knows, this, knows how to say Oh, Thich, Thich Nhat Hanh. It's T-H-I-C-H, and then the middle name is N-H-A-T, Thich Nhat, and then well, Han is H-A-H-N. A guy like that who writes the most fucking beautiful poems and shit. I mean, I just love that guy. He, we have one thing over him. I mean, way over. We, what you and I share as old friends is way deeper than what he has, in my opinion. And that's humor. Our main thing is comedy. The spiritual thing has a, it's a problem because when you're a spiritual leader, you have to be spiritual, have to put out the, I mean, I just, my heart goes out to those guys because they have to exude serenity and all the things that are kind of fake. Humor is the only thing that isn't fake. Well, the gurus laugh. And they laugh because they're, because they're like, I have a, I've seen these teachers and they just laugh their heads off and you're not laughing. Well, it's not, it's not that it's funny to, it's not particularly funny to you. It's not that they're making comedy, but they are delighting. They're laughing. You know, well, those are the real guys that are, are finding humor and everything that in my, well, I, I think, I think the most powerful thing is humor and emotion together. And that's why I think it's the way to teach mental health skills, that, that because humor opens you up and then it allows your emotion to come out. And the way to open it up is through a lot of, you know, play, playfulness and exaggeration. Totally. That's you, it. You just nailed it. I remember, I think Mike Pritchard, he was probably quoting somebody else, but he said, you know, laughter's the shortest distance between two people. And it's an instant close connection. Suddenly you're not alone. There's something very special about darkness and laughter because you're writing the Encyclopedia of Hell one and two, and those are thousands of pages, thousands of pages. What are you experiencing when you're writing that? I'm laughing a lot, but I'm also crying. I mean, I wanted to write from the devil's perspective, from evil's perspective to make fun of it, but also for, for, for two reasons. All bets were off in terms of political correctness, if you can put things through the words of Satan, right? Wow. That's expected. But the other thing was telling a story where the greatest e evil, telling a funny story where the greatest evil is forgiven. I mean, that makes for an intense story. Yeah, the greatest evil is forgiven. So how do you, as a person and as a creator, as a writer... How do you, sorry for all these bells and whistles. How do you, how do you, how do you come to that? Like what, when do you wake up and say, wait a minute, exploring evil with humor is the way. I think that cuts to the core of my particular personal history because I was eight, eight or nine or because I remember the moment when I wanted to be a comedy writer and I was, went into my mother's bedroom who was watching TV it was the Merv Griffin show. And he said, and now brother Theodore <laughs> and all the lights went out. It's completely suddenly changed. I mean, Merv Griffin was, by the way, he named him brother theater. He created the persona for him. Yeah. Merv Griffin was a trip. And so all the lights went out and, and, and I didn't know what was going on. 
And because I'd seen Merv Griffin show many times and I knew he was kind of like a ringmaster of crazy characters and also the greatest musicians I'd ever heard. But suddenly the spotlight hit this fucking guy <laughs> who was all dressed in black, right? And yeah, with a black, black hair and a ferocious look with a German accent. And he started ranting and raving <laughs> on the Merv Griffin show. Yeah. Walking around in the spotlight following him talking about death and uh, that all life is meaningless and everybody's an idiot. And, <laughs> and, and I was just, I was literally shell-shocked. I'll never forget it. And every one of his little speech things ended with a, a, re, a reversal, a, a, like a Stephen Wright joke. Yeah. One was, um, where there is death, there is hope. <laughs> so... Oh my God. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. At that moment. And, and he was getting big laughs. Yeah, because of the Steve Wright reversal joke things at the end of each horrible thing about how everything is meaningless. Yeah, and so at that moment I said, "Oh, you could do that." I asked my mother. I said, "What is his? Have you seen?" She said, "I've never seen him. I don't know who this is." She said, "But he's pretty funny." And at that moment, that's when I realized I wanted to be a comedy writer. That's an amazing moment because that's a very I remember him like it was yesterday mm. because I watched all those shows, of course, and. You couldn't explain a brother Theodore you, to anybody today. You really couldn't explain it. But it's character, you know, Erwin Corey is the flip side. He's just crazy. Oh, my God. But, I got a good Erwin Corey story for you. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. Cool. So I'm in Boston at this jazz club with a couple of friends from work. I see Erwin Corey there with this young girl. He leaves. And then I go and I thought maybe I'll be able to at least say hi to him because there was music playing and everything. And he wasn't in the men's room. And I went out. He was out back smoking pot. And so wow. he offered me some pot. And then we, I, that's how I met him, Erwin Corey. And he was the most delightful, sweetest guy ever. Oh, my God. The professor. <laughs> I know. The, prof the professor. But these guys were amazing people. Actually, there should be somebody should do a book on the, this kind of, you know, character comics. Because they're really interesting people where this stuff comes from. You, do, you know, you find out there's a story behind it. So this kind of thing, this kind of heavy subject matter, this kind of forbidden evil, and then uh, the comedy of it, the comedy of evil. So you started working with this, or you knew that there was something there, or you knew the kind of car character comedy. That's what made you laugh. What's going on in you while you're, now you're trying to write this stuff, or you're writing for comics, and you're, but you're leaning toward, that's your sensibility. But you've also collaborated with a lot of people. Does somebody have to have that awareness for you to collaborate with them? Because if they don't have that language, it's tough, isn't it? Well, the, uh, the goal, of course, of, work, of getting jobs is to be able to be flexible and be adaptive. Whereas people like, you know, Bob Goldthwaite or Kevin Meany or Kevin Rooney or Kevin Nealon, all the Kevins. All the Kevins. That was more of a natural place for me because... In fact, Kevin Nealon has kind of a character. When I first time I saw you on stage, I, I thought that was a character, much like <laughs> Kevin Nealon's character. He yeah. was kind of a witty, self-aware, fuck you artist, kind of who's who's very whose act is being nice. <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. You know, that's actually a very insightful way to describe. It. No one's ever described me like that. That's uh, it was pretty so great. And funny, it's you and Kevin Nealon have similar similar uh, kevin doesn't lean into the niceness he leans into the sincerity 
And then he says horrible, horrible things in a very sincere way. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I just really like the I like the mixture of talking about things that are you know really uh, hurtful or serious or you know painful. Yeah. But but talking about but exaggerating it. Yeah. Exaggerating what I'm doing or what I'm thinking about it because that's the way I grew up. That's really the way I oh, thought of wow. things, and that's why it was so pain. That's why I I felt like there was something wrong with me for, you know, I wasn't okay. You well, know? your act is so fucking funny because you, in your act, your, part of your bits start to question yourself instantly on the moment yeah. <laughs> and do quick reversals, you know, and fixing what you just said, stuff like that. Well, I think, but now I found this thing and it's, it's not a thing, what? but it, I've been doing it for years and it's, it's trying to combine this comedy with like mental health, mental health skills. It's the greatest thing ever. Like, like, but like really leaving somebody with that, like, I'm not to, you know, we're really trying to, you know, how do you relate to your thoughts and feelings? Did you know that your brain is trying to protect you? That's what anxiety is. Did Mm. you know that? Wow. You know, giving that in the guise of like comedy is fantastic. You know, to me, I had Kevin Pollack do Al Pacino's masterclass on anger. Oh, I saw that bit that you wrote for him. Oh my God. And, and he, but the things that he's saying are actual anger transformation skills. They're actually educating you about what anger is, where it comes from and what our relationship is to it or our lack of relationship or lack of understanding is of it. That's really cool. Like if you can leave something, you know, that's why I love Eddie Pepitone and you know yes. other people like that. You know, that range that you can go from zero to a hundred. Well, Pollock and Pepitone, first of all, with, well, specifically with Pepitone, he goes from zero to 100 instantly. Yeah. <laughs> Pollock is more like, first of all, Pollock is sweetest guy ever. He's just a nice guy. And he puts on the act of being like a Hollywood savvy guy. But he is a heartfelt fucking dude. Yeah. I did a HBO special with him. And he the first thing he asked me was, how much did you make before? And then he said, well, you're, I'm doing better than that. That kind of thing. He instantly would was taking care of you in a practical way. That's what a good person he is. Yeah. He's also the most articulate person oh my about, God. about comedy I've ever heard in my life. Oh like my his, God. And he knows what he's doing and he knows why it's funny and he knows what it means. And he, he's one of the most articulate people about comedy ever. Very insightful, very sh- smart and interesting person. I love I, He's the great. Yeah, yeah, I love him too. He's great. He's great. Been a good friend. Let's talk about the encyclopedias a little bit, but also what's interesting about Satan? Like why why is Satan such a great thing? And if you're talking about Satan, is is there a heaven then? Is there another part of it? Or do you get do you is the portal through Satan? First of all, I'm doing comedy writing, so I'm doing it all deadpan, right? Right. And I'm not doing anything to do with biblical stuff at all. If there's only the 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 words and the names are are used and religions, but there's no, absolutely nothing biblical. <laughs> Hell exists, heaven exists, earth exists. And that's just kind of an our time frame. And one of the premises of these, it's it's a trilogy, it's three books. I'm working on the third one now. Casey and Olivia and Kay, my family, they helped me hugely going through these because I discuss them all the time. And there's a little bit of, you know, eye rolling going on because it's all I want to talk about. <laughs> huh. But they help have helped me hugely figure out the best joke aside from why satan 
because I think I already touched on that, which is because all bets are off in terms of jokes. There's no place you can't go. Right. In terms of writing this, and why am I writing this, spending so much time writing this stupid thing, is because it was kind of a cool idea that hell, earth, and heaven were all the same sphere in vastly different time frames. Hell in the way, way distant past, an unimaginable past, earth in the present, and heaven in the super vast distant future. The demons evolve into humans, the humans evolve into angels, the demons evolve into angels. And Satan was doesn't know why he how he got there. He doesn't remember back that far. So his the whole point of this these three books is that Satan's trying to find out who he is. How did he get there? What is this all about? Because he didn't even know about the creator, a god. He he was the creator because he created all the demons and hell itself from the fabric of his mind. He was alone in just darkness. Mm. So Satan found eventually that hell was overcrowded, which is just the, the first joke in the book. So he decides to um, go into the, they're time travelers. So are angels. There, there's no time in hell or in heaven. So the past and the future are equally as accessible. Through machines, though, they have to do it with machines. So he wants to just expand hell into, hev into uh, the future, into earth, and then use humans as foodstuffs and have his extra demonic population on earth so the first book is basically just a a joke book with a story attached it's written by satan it's like a to z everything about earth because humanity is incomprehensible to demons and satan wrote it so then thus i had the jokes written by satan which were very uh, unpleasant and i think about 50 percent of them are really good the rest of them are just kind of either like because i i wrote like three times the amount that's in the book. And then I just cut out the horrible, horrible ones. So I was left with the good ones and the not so good. He made this as an invasion manual for the demons who are going to be invading earth and taking over and eating everybody, killing everybody. And he also wanted to amuse the demons so that their invasion would be fun. Thus, the book is funny about how stupid humans are and so on. Wow. What he didn't expect was that when after the invasion is complete and all humans are eaten, uh, after all this rigmarole stuff, which involves Jesus, who's just a guy, by the way, in the book, but he was a, he had a big following. <laughs> and Jesus looks nothing like the, the way he's depicted, because he just was a human. But he looks a lot. He's very close to Buddy. Who's that comedian? Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett. That's like, you know, people have a, a double in the future or past. So the illustrators had fun doing the Jesus pictures because... Oh, my God. Satan in the second book realizes that after intercourse with earth, that there's a creator because he doesn't know how he got there. So he said, wait a minute, if somebody created me, I have to kill him and then take over the whole thing. So as a sick joke, he went back in time and went to get Jesus and put him in charge of hell. Wow. And Jesus fucked it all up because he, he cured, he healed all the demons and he, he, he reupholstered and put chandeliers and pianos and track lighting up in all of hell. So he just ruined it. After the invasion is completed and Satan and book Satan realizes that there's he was a created being. In book two, then he has to go to heaven and find God and kill him. That's what book two's plot is. And he takes a time machine, but it's really called a Merkaba, which is an old Jewish Muslim mystical thought vehicle which is what you create these uh, wheels within wheels 
and you have directives as to how to travel to any place in any time. How is it on gas? Exactly. No, I, it sounds it sounds amazing. It exactly. sounds like a, tra- a traveling Kabbalah. God damn it! I missed that joke. I wish I'd run it past you. I, I missed that joke in book two. Mm. Him running out of gas at the end of it. Satan goes on a rogue mission to find and kill God so he could take over everything because he finds out that heaven exists and way, way in the future. So he takes his vehicle there on a rogue mission himself. Meanwhile, God, who we'll find out later, is in big trouble. He had masterminded kind of a dirty trick. He created a prophecy on a giant stone wheel that's miles high that has all of these insignias on it. And they, the demons translate it. And when God leaves on his, uh, what do you call it, his his rogue mission, he puts this, the only guy left, He Satan killed all the competent demons before he left for various infractions. And only one is left, the stupidest and most idiotic one, called Zeke. Wow. And Zeke, when Satan leaves, finds on this giant stone wheel, this prophecy, which Jesus translates for him, because Jesus is like an idiot genius, right? And Jesus translates the thing that says that God is going to destroy hell. Enough is enough. And so Zeke now leads all of the demon army, unknown by Satan, to heaven to destroy heaven and kill God. So that's the plot and the action in book two. I think the best joke in the thing is about who God is and how what happened, because God is actually heaven is just first of all, God created everything, including Satan and everybody. And we find out that Satan is God's sons. God takes two forms. One is this kind of dumpy guy with a bowler hat who's kind of a shrugging schlub. And the other one is a six-year-old girl, a beautiful young little girl. But God, from the beginning, before he split up into those two forms that he liked a lot, when there was nothing, he had this urge in him to kill himself. Finally, there was a solution, and it was that he had to take the part of him that wanted to kill himself out through just physical exertion. He had to form a body. You can't do anything without a body. Pull this energy form out of him and put it someplace where he because you can't kill anything nobody ever dies in these books by the way everyone's always alive there's no Mm. death because if you can time travel you can always go back to when someone's alive Mm. so he puts satan this little girl pulls the the demonic part out of her that wants to kill herself and puts it in a fucking black hole and seals it then in book three we find out that that's how satan in the darkness who's god's child was abandoned and created after infinite time hell and all of the demons just as god had created all of this other stuff so this is where god finds out who he is and finds out those things i just was saying and faces his mom who's god and what happens when they face off so i was super happy with the second book because i'm laughing and i'm sobbing like a baby writing it wow that is such a story. That is tremendous. I would so much. I wish that was in Hebrew school. I would have enjoyed studying that rather than the Torah. Not a bad book. Some good stories in the Torah. But oh. this one is really, this is this is Torah plus. You know, the Jewish thing is, I mean, it's just the Jewish mysticism is where it's at. The Jackie Diamond went into the Jewish laws and I'm thinking, why are you doing that? That's the worst part. I mean, the Jewish yeah. mysticism thing was just so unbelievably uh, challenging to understand because it's about what is the substance of, of existence and what is, what is it all about? It's about what you're talking about right now. And it, and it <laughs> describes, it is, and it describes it in that language. In the Kabbalah, 
which, by the way, you're not supposed to look at or read until you're 42. <laughs> that is the truth. Uh, I didn't know. You are told you are not ready. You must uh, suffer needlessly for 42 years, and then you go in, and you can start learning about where the tarot comes from and where all the fire of Judaism is, is in the Kabbalah. Wow. So what else? Now, this is what the Kabbalah says. This is an example of what the Kabbalah says. What? When you're born, there's a tiny angel that sits in your mother's uterus and tells you everything you need to know about life. And then just before you come out, they tap you right under your nose, which is why you have that indentation there. <laughs> and, and you forget everything that you know. Oh, that's a riot. What a beautiful story. Did and, you make that and, up or is that really a story? No, that's from the Kabbalah. Oh, I love and it. You, and, and your life is meant to experience all that you know already. Oh, I love it. That's the purpose of life. It's the best. I mean, the Jewish mysticism is the greatest shit ever. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's fantastic. But, but, but again, got to be 42. Got to be 42. Every culture's mystical knowledge is the best. Because you're telling these stories when you're working on this stuff and you're talking to your daughter or you're talking to your son and it's like you're sharing these experiences, these stories and having conversations about it. What are they responding with? Do they jump in with you? Obviously, they're creative kids yeah i i just um, was super lucky ed because my first of all my wife had to have a similar sense of humor she wouldn't be able to love me you know so she yeah she reads everything i ever wrote she's an astrologer by the way something i don't understand except as a elevator of intelligence you know as a mm -hmm. as a tool to to raise the iq i don't believe in it but i know that that it's a useful way to interpret the world but she uh, reads everything and uh, it's constantly, you know, because I don't know what I'm doing. Both kids, when they grew up, uh, because I came out from the Boston comedy scene, we started the first club in Boston. And so as a result, I ended up writing, knowing all the Boston comedy scene, which is a very intense. I think it's one of the funniest comedy scenes. Absolutely. Love that group. And st I started in the Comedy Connection when they had a class at the Boston Center for Adult Education. Get out. There was no club in Boston. There was no, I don't I think it's way back. And they, the, the prize for finishing the class was that you got a five minute set at this new club called the comedy connection. Wait a minute. Was this with Sean Mori? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just at the end of <clears throat> Sean Mori with uh, Bill and Paul. Dude, and, I was in your class. We oh, were in you, the same class together. Oh, that's insane. That's really insane. How <laughs> do you believe it? I failed it. Obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah, but no, that's, I was like uh, 17 years old or something. I don't even know. You know, I knew I loved comedy, but I didn't know that I would be stand up or anything like that. Uh, but I, but I, I wanted to be. You were in that class. That's incredible. I was in that class. They had different people come and talk to us. I think Stephen Wright came in. I oh, think no, no. Then this Sweeney. Is a, this is a later class then because. Might've been later. We hadn't started the comedy connection, the first comedy club in Boston until until Paul Barkley and Bill Downs. Yeah. Well, they weren't in any class with Steve Sweeney and all these people giving. And no, they I, taught They taught the class. They, they didn't teach it, but it was like sort of their thing. And then they brought in all their friends who was like Sweeney and Steve Wright. And, you know, those people would come in and talk. Well, I don't they understand had, because the time frame is different in my memory than the one you have because we didn't it, have any comedians. 
we had to find the comedian. We had to put an ad in the paper, Comedians Wanted. And that's when we met Steve Sweeney and Steve Wright and Joe Alasky. And- yeah, they weren't comics yet, uh, but they came in somehow. Like Steve Sweeney did a character thing. And I don't know why or what qualified him to do a character thing at the time, because they weren't, like you said, they weren't professional comedians, but they were their friends. But I do remember performing on that, you know, and the, when they opened the club, they wow. just opened it. I was at the um, piano. I was the piano player. Oh, my God. This is crazy. <laughs> so I saw we, you, and I saw we, every, the, the thing about being a piano player is you, you have to be there and see everybody's act. Oh, my God. So, what an interesting perspective. <laughs> but then you get to play music. So it's like, even if it's the worst thing you've ever seen in your life, you then get to be musical. And and I think the first time I became aware of you or knew you was through Jeremy Kramer. Yeah, my writing and, partner for three big shows. And that is a whole other thing that we have to cover, because I wanted to talk to you about your, your being a collaborator and what happens when you do those things and the kinds of people that you that you work with and collaborate with and the adaptation. We'll talk about the adaptation of a comedy mind. Oh, um, wow. I can't wait well, to tell you about Jeremy and about all my experience with Jeremy. So my, my one, one of my favorite people. Yeah. I mean, all the people that you worked with are my favorite people. So <laughs> you and you included, of course, but, uh, but uh, okay. Well, I can't thank you enough. We're going to have more Thanks. and look for the encyclopedia of hell one parts, one and two, three coming out adventure time. The great Olivia Olson. I've been listening to her singing, and it's kind oh, of rid- kind of ridiculous how great she is. Beautiful. Well, the, the the what wasn't mentioned was just briefly the the brains of our family is our is because my wife and I are are idiots. My son Casey, four years older than Olivia, he's always been the brains, and he and I are writing a. Um, we spent a year to outline this uh, supernatural thriller. It takes place in Washington, D.C. over 60 years. And I can't tell you how much fun it is working with him because he's the one that always came up with the plots and stories for everything for me. <laughs> oh, my God. That's spectacular. Yeah, this this collision, uh, this this melding of <laughs> of, you know, state of evil, of dark and, and light uh, with humor yeah. and in a silly way. Yeah. Is like this is the antidote to what's going on in the world right now. Oh, this is the so antidote. Right. You drink the antidote. This is the antidote. You're so right. It really is. So great to talk to you. Likewise. Um, really we will we will do it again. I'll come out come out and have some some coffee. I would like that. All right. Um, I love you my friend. I'm so glad we finally had a meeting of the minds. This is great. <laughs> me too. Me too. Love you too. Well that was amazing. What a journey, as you hear. The mind of Martin Olson, incredible imagination, incredible talent, and a really good friend and a, and a wonderful person. Uh, all of that mixed together with wicked humor. He has a wicked sense of humor. And we would say that in Massachusetts. We'd say, oh, he's got a wicked sense of humor. And he does. So look for The Encyclopedia of Hell and all of Martin's other books on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening to the show. Please look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Go to makelightmedia.com. You can find us there or you can find us anywhere. Go to connectedparenting.com to find out about Jennifer's incredible work, services, media, other podcasts, books, self-parenting and parenting and family and everything related to 
how to deal with ourselves and to deal with the outside world and what's going on in our brain that connects to all of this. Very important stuff. ConnectedParenting.com. I'm Ed Krasnick. Look for the good. Keep coming back at works if you work it. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.